Chapter Five of *The Devil in Iron* by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. Along the black, silent tunnel, Conan groped, momentarily dreading a fall into some unseen pit. But at last, his feet struck steps again and he went up them until he came to a door on which his fumbling fingers found a metal catch. He came out into a dim and lofty room of enormous proportions. Fantastic columns marched around the mottled walls, upholding a ceiling which, at once translucent and dusky, seemed like a cloudy midnight sky, giving an illusion of impossible height. If any light filtered in from the outside, it was curiously altered. In a brooding twilight, Conan moved across the bare green floor. The great room was circular, pierced on one side by the great bronze valves of a giant door. Opposite this, on a dais against the wall, up to which led broad, curving steps, there stood a throne of copper and when Conan saw what was coiled on this throne, he retreated hastily, lifting his scimitar. Then, as the thing did not move, he scanned it more closely, and presently mounted the glass steps and stared down at it. It was a gigantic snake, apparently carved in some jade-like substance. Each scale stood out as distinctly as in real life and the iridescent colors were vividly reproduced. The great wedge-shaped head was half-submerged in the folds of its trunk, so neither the eyes nor jaws were visible. Recognition stirred in his mind. This snake was evidently meant to represent one of those grim monsters of the marsh which in past ages had haunted the reedy edges of Villette's southern shores. But, like the golden leopard, they had been extinct for hundreds of years. Conan had seen rude images of them, in miniature, among the idle huts of the Uetchi, and there was a description of them in the Book of Skelos, which drew on prehistoric sources. Conan admired the scaly torso, thick as his thigh and obviously of great length and he reached out and laid a curious hand on the thing, and, as he did so, his heart nearly stopped. An icy chill congealed the blood in his veins and lifted the short hair on his scalp. Under his hand there was not the smooth, brittle surface of glass or metal or stone, but the yielding, fibrous mass of a living thing. He felt cold, sluggish life, flowing under his fingers. His hand jerked back in instinctive repulsion, sword shaking in his grasp, horror and revulsion and fear almost choking him. He backed away and down the glass steps with painful care, glaring in awful fascination at the grisly thing that slumbered on the copper throne. It did not move. He reached the bronze door and tried it, with his heart in his teeth, sweating with fear that he should find himself locked in with that slimy horror. But the valves yielded to his touch, and he glided through and closed them behind him. 
he found himself in a wide hallway with lofty tapestried walls, where the light was the same twilight gloom. It made distant objects indistinct, and that made him uneasy, rousing thoughts of serpents gliding unseen through the dimness. A door at the other end seemed miles away in the elusive light. Nearer at hand, the tapestry hung in such a way as to suggest an opening behind it, and, lifting it cautiously, he discovered a narrow stair leading up. While he hesitated, he heard in the great room he had just left the same shuffling tread he had heard outside the locked panel. Had he been followed through the tunnel? He went up the stair hastily, dropping the tapestry in place behind him. Emerging presently into a twisting corridor, he took the first doorway he came to. He had a twofold purpose in his apparently aimless prowling to escape from the building and its mysteries, and to find the Nemedian girl who, he felt, was imprisoned somewhere in this palace, temple, or whatever it was. He believed it was the great domed edifice in the center of the city, and it was likely that here dwelt the ruler of the town, to whom a captive woman would doubtless be brought. He found himself in a chamber, not another corridor and was about to retrace his steps, when he heard a voice which came from behind one of the walls. There was no door in that wall, but he leaned close and heard distinctly, and an icy chill crawled slowly along his spine. The tongue was Nemedian, but the voice was not human. There was a terrifying resonance about it, like a bell tolling at midnight. There was no life in the abyss, save that which was incorporated in me, it told. Nor was there light, nor motion, nor any sound. Only the urge behind and beyond life guided and impelled me on my upward journey, blind, insensate, inexorable. Through ages upon ages and the changeless strata of darkness I climbed. Ensorcelled by that belling resonance, Conan crouched forgetful of all else, until its hypnotic power caused a strange replacement of faculties and perception, and sound created the illusion of sight. Conan was no longer aware of the voice, save as far-off rhythmical waves of sound. Transported beyond his age and his own individuality, he was seeing the transmutation of the being men called Kosatral Kel, which crawled up from the night and the abyss ages ago to clothe itself in the substance of the material universe. But human flesh was too frail, too paltry, to hold the terrific essence that was Kosatral Kel. So he stood up in the shape and aspect of a man, but his flesh was not flesh, nor the bone bone, nor blood blood. He became a blasphemy against all nature 
for he caused to live and think and act a basic substance that before had never known the pulse and stir of animate being. He stalked through the world like a god, for no earthly weapon could harm him, and to him a century was like an hour. In his wanderings he came upon a primitive people inhabiting the island of Dagonia, and it pleased him to give this race culture and civilization, and by his aid they built the city of Dagon, and they abode there and worshipped him. Strange and grisly were his servants, called from the dark corners of the planet, where grim survivals of forgotten ages yet lurked. His house in Dagon was connected with every other house by tunnels, through which his shaven-headed priests bore victims for the sacrifice. But after many ages a fierce and brutish people appeared on the shores of the sea. They called themselves Uatsi, and after a fierce battle they were defeated and enslaved, and for nearly a generation they died on the altars of Kosatrol. His sorcery kept them in bonds. Then their priest, a strange gaunt man of unknown race, plunged into the wilderness, and when he returned he bore a knife that was of no earthly substance. It was forged of a meteor which flashed through the sky like a flaming arrow and fell in a far valley. The slaves rose, their saw-edged crescents cut down the men of Dagon like sheep, and against that unearthly knife the magic of Kosatrel was impotent, while carnage and slaughter bellowed through the red smoke that choked the streets. The grimmest act of that grim drama was played in the cryptic dome behind the great diest chamber with its copper throne and its walled mottled like the skin of serpents. From that dome the Uetzi priest emerged alone. He had not slain his foe because he wished to hold the threat of his loosing over the heads of his own rebellious subjects. He had left Kosatrol lying upon the golden dais, with the mystic knife across his breast for a spell to hold him senseless and inanimate until doomsday. But the ages passed, and the priest died, the towers of deserted Dagon crumbled, the tales became dim, and the Uetzi were reduced by plagues and famines and war to scattered remnants, dwelling in squalor along the seashore. Only the cryptic dome resisted the rod of time, until a chance thunderbolt and the curiosity of a fisherman lifted from the breast of the god the magic knife and broke the spell. Kosatrol Kel rose and lived and waxed mighty once more. It pleased him to restore the city as it was in the days before its fall. By his necromancy he lifted the towers from the dust of forgotten millenniums, and the folk which had been dust for ages moved in life again. But folk who have tasted death are only partly alive. In the dark corners of their souls and minds death still lurks unconquered. 
By night the people of Dagon moved and loved, hated and feasted, and remembered the fall of Dagon and their own slaughter only as a dim dream. They moved in an enchanted mist of illusion, feeling the strangeness of their existence, but not inquiring the reasons therefor. With the coming of day they sank into deep sleep, to be roused again only by the coming of night, which is akin to death. All this rolled in a terrible panorama before Conan's consciousness as he crouched beside the tapestried wall. His reason staggered. All certainty and sanity were swept away, leaving a shadowy universe through which stole hooded figures of grisly potentialities. Through the belling of the voice, which was like a tolling of triumph over the ordered laws of a sane planet, a human sound anchored Conan's mind from its flight through spheres of madness. It was the hysterical sobbing of a woman. Involuntarily he sprang up. End of chapter 5